Thank you, Roz. Um, let me add my welcome. If I don't know you, my name is Simon. I am one of the leaders here, and I'm going to speak on those words that we just read, but I'm first going to ask for God's help for us. Father, please would you help us as we look at these words. Please would you help us to hear what you have to say to us this afternoon. And Father, we pray that you would help us to respond in awe and praise of what you are like. Amen. Six weeks ago today, I was sat by this river coming up on the screen in Budapest in Hungary, and I was having one of those conversations that's quite deep, um, maybe a bit heavy, and is good to let breathe. Um, if you've had one of those conversations recently, you'll know, um, actually, it's good to have a conversation like that on a river, because you can just watch the river as you just need to take a bit of time. And after a little while, sat looking at the river, it just suddenly dawned on me. This river is great. I had a moment of awe, realising just how great the river is. The river splits the city in two, Buda on one side and Pest on the other. It's big and it's wide and it runs fast. I think at that moment I saw something like a tree branch in the water and it dawned on me just how quickly it was flowing. You'll see from the uh, little map there on the left, there's an island on the middle of the river. And so that that you can see is just half of the river. And uh, I was sat talking and I pointed out this branch and said, whoa, this river is huge. Anyway, it turns out the person I was speaking to had quite uh, some geography up their sleeve. Bit of trivia. They said, oh, the Danube flows from the Black Forest in Germany all the way as far east as Ukraine and the Black Sea. It flows for nearly 2,000 miles. It's the second longest river in Europe. And they reckon nearly 20 million people depend on it for their water source. We just sat in silence for a moment, in awe. Wow. This river is greater than we thought. Look, as we come to Romans 11... I hope that you will see in the text this afternoon that the main aim of Paul's writing here is that we would be in awe of God and his grace because God's grace is greater than you think. Look, we'll see, I mean, as we read, it's clear there's lots going on in this passage, some tricky bits, some bits that are argued over. But I've become convinced that in order to faithfully handle the passage Today, we're not going to ignore some of those things. Some of those details are quite complicated, but we can't get bogged down in them. We can't lose sight of Paul's main thrust to see and be in awe of God's overflowing grace. So first, here's the purpose of the chapter. God's grace is greater than you think. Why is Paul writing this? Well, um, if you're just joining us this afternoon, the context of what's going on here in Rome that we've seen over the last few weeks is he's talking to Gentiles. We see that in verse 13, people that aren't from a Jewish heritage, because of what we've seen over the last few weeks is there's some degree of conflict that's going on because the Jews in Rome are not accepting the good news about Jesus. And we'll see from the passage that 
the Gentiles aren't being particularly gracious towards them. They've recognised Jesus, they've trusted in him, but the Jews who had been God's favourite nation, well, they're not being that kind to them. So what does Paul want to say? He's saying to the Gentiles, don't have a narrow view of grace. You think those Jews aren't going to accept Jesus? Don't give up on them. You think that they really should have recognised Jesus by now? Don't be so proud. There might be all sorts of surprising people who come to faith in Jesus. Just have a look down at the picture we see from verse 13, uh, 17. Sorry. Here the Gentiles are the wild shoots. Just read along with me. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Do you see what Paul's saying? If you're a proud Gentile, remember the roots and hold on to them. Imagine the Gentile in Rome. The Jews seem to have been broken off. The Gentiles are saying, oh, let's leave them. Forget about them. Let's speak down on them. Criticise them. And do you see what Paul's answer is? See that picture? The moment you think you're the best in the bush you're in trouble. The moment I think God must be pretty happy to have me on my team and I look down on anyone else, I'm in real danger. Have a look at verse 24. After all, if you were cut, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own tree? Look, it's just a picture. The people of Israel, they have a rich history. They've had a foreshadow of the Messiah. This is what Augustine wrote. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber, richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in there before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but what was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. It's like Paul is saying, all the Jews need is to have the light turned on to recognise the person of Jesus. Look, here's the point of what Paul's writing to the Gentile people who've come to trust in Jesus. If he can bring in a weed like you, 
How much more can he bring in a root like them? If he can bring in you, he can bring in whoever he wants. Don't have a narrow view of God's grace. Because God's grace is greater than you think. It's overflowed from the Jews to the Gentiles. And so for us now, we're not quite in this conversation. But we too are called not to have a narrow view of God's grace. God's grace is greater than you think. If God's grafted you into the true vine, he can do it with anyone around you. Don't give up on them. Don't think there's no chance. Don't stop praying for them. Don't think you're better than them. God's grace is greater than you think. And so, just like me sat next to the Danube, Paul's purpose is so that we, his readers, would both know the greatness of his grace, but to really experience and grasp it, not just know it, because God's grace is greater than you think. For what purpose then is Paul writing? Well, it's in that moment of recognising the greatness of God's grace that it's bigger than maybe I first realised, that the people, first the people at the time, they'd be humble as they look at the people around them, but also that they'd be in absolute awe of God, that they'd have their eyes open to the greatness of God's grace. You see that in the final four verses, the doxology. God's grace is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be praised. Well, second, what is God doing with Israel? Maybe that's the kind of crux of the issue here in this passage that's been much debated. Well, look, there's a repeated cycle that we see going on in this chapter. Just have a look down at verse 11 and and see this um, cycle with me. Verse 11, first, Israel stumbles. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Second, salvation comes to the Gentiles. Do you see that there? Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. It's an overflow of God's grace. God is gracious in what he does. And then third, to make Israel envious. Do you see that there? But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Do you see the purpose there in that sentence? The purpose is that Israel would be jealous so that they would then be included. The purpose is the full inclusion. That God's grace would then overflow as Israel is saved. Israel stumbles. Salvation comes to the Gentiles. Israel is jealous. And then Israel is saved. Back again, have a look at verse 25. We see that cycle again. First, Israel stumbles. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. 
Second, salvation comes to the Gentiles until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And third, and in this way, Israel is saved. That is, by Israel positively becoming envious of the Gentiles, God's grace overflows back to them. And so, look, as Paul writes, A and B, the first two bits there, they've already happened. Israel has experienced a hardening. The Jews, God's people, until that time, they're, they're rejecting Jesus. And salvation then has come to the Gentiles. We see that through the book of Acts. As they go into each of the towns and cities, they go first to the Jews. The Jews often reject the message of the gospel, the, the good news about Jesus coming to them. And so then they go to the Gentiles in that place. And so God's grace overflows as it goes to the Gentiles. But see there, third and fourth, Israel becomes jealous, Israel is saved. It's yet to happen as Paul writes. And look, maybe you've um, heard, there's lots of conversation often goes around in these uh, few verses. It's a short little bit, the first part of verse 26, and it's got three complex parts. Just have a look down. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And the question is, well, how can that be? If they're not accepting Jesus, how will they be saved? So we're just going to go through those three parts of the question. The first at the top, and in this way. It's interesting, the um, NIV translation was changed in 2011. Just a few little bits that helpfully tie up a few loose ends for us. Just based on the language, it just helps us. Here is one of the bits. Previously, this verse was, and all Israel will be saved. But it was changed based on the grammatical form of the word and the context of what's going on in the writing to say, and in this way. And that helps us because it tells us what's going on. And in this way, that is according to what has already been discussed. It's not just that once that's happened, God's going to save all Israel. It's according to what has just been discussed. By the overflow of his grace that comes as the Jews see the Gentiles trusting Jesus. There's a qualifier. So second, all Israel. What does it mean, all Israel? Well, it doesn't make sense in light of the conversation in Romans. The use of Israel through the Old Testament... Or what we know about God, that it would be referring to any and every Jew ever. Anybody that's ever identified as a Jewish. Because that would be a Christless faith. That doesn't stand up to what the rest of the Bible says is the only way to be right with God. But there are two tenable options. It's either all of God's chosen people, all of the true Israel, that is the people that God has chosen, which is pretty comfortable for us, is unproblematic, because it makes sense that God would choose all of the people of Israel, of the true Israel. <coughs> or it could be that in light of the context, it's not talking specifically about all of Israel, sorry, is talking more specifically about the ethnic Israel, 
the Jewish people. And the common use for um, this throughout the Old Testament is not the totality, the all of Israel, but it's more of a use like when I eat everything in the fridge. When I go to the fridge and everything is gone. Now, when you go to the fridge, there's still a bottle of lemon juice at the back and there's a bottle of ketchup at the back. Not everything is gone, but repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, it says all Israel to describe a mass of Jews, a mass of uh, um, or Israel en masse, you could say. Third, will be saved. What is it talking about? Paul writes, remember, about 50 AD. And so there's a number of options for when this saving happens. First, it could be a moment in past history from us. So, for example, a specific point in time, maybe 10, 15, 20 years after Paul writes. Second, it could be a process across history from the moment that Paul writes. Or third, it could be a fixed point, a moment in the future. Specifically, maybe some people refer to um, when Jesus returns. Look, maybe that diagram is a lot of information. Maybe that's unhelpful. But I, I wanted to touch on it. But please hear this. People, people hold to different views. I don't mind giving you my opinion here. And here's why I don't mind. I think in the context of the chapter, it's important we hold it lightly. I'd be most convinced that Paul's talking about a process that predominantly happens after Paul's writing, whereby a mass of Jews turn to trust in Jesus because they've recognised the glorious gospel that the Gentiles have turned to trust in. But I think the very point of this passage means that we should hold it lightly. Looking at all of that, having done lots of reading in the last two weeks, I'd be pretty surprised if God, at some point in the future, saves a mass of Jews on one specific day. But, wow, if he does, praise God. Praise God. God, his grace is greater than I thought. Actually, if we say to any of the tenable options that hold up to biblical theology, hold up to the text, if we say to any of those options, God can't do that, well, we're in danger of becoming just like the Gentiles, aren't we? And that's Paul's point as he writes to the Gentiles. Don't think this is all about you. Look, in some parts of the world, for some people, this is really hotly contested. That's why I thought it was important to touch on it. Actually, for us, for the vast majority of us, probably not too invested in this conversation. But how big is your view of God's grace? When it comes to people you know and care about who don't yet trust in Jesus... God is in the business of saving a people for himself. And his grace is greater than you think. Don't write anyone off. Don't say they will never come to trust in Jesus. Don't stop. Don't stop praying. Don't give up. This is the glorious message of the gospel. 
It overflows as people are captivated by it. And his grace is greater than you think. Third, the doxology, the words of praise about God, verses 33 to 36. Because our rescue is all of his grace, it will be for his glory. Look, if you come away with one thing today, please let it be this and not that table. God's grace is greater than you think. He is worthy of our praise. God's grace is greater than you think, so he is worthy of our praise. Let's just look at verse 33 to 36, verse by verse. It's a brilliant end to these last few weeks. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Look, maybe if you've been here or listening in the last couple of weeks, your head has been spinning a bit. God's sovereignty? Ah, it's hard. It's stretching. (coughs) Good. But will it spin and stretch us to recognise that God's grace is greater than you think? Just look at verse 33. He has a huge wealth of exhaustive wisdom that we can't even get near. We're bound by time and space and perspective in ways that don't even get near God. Our son, our middle son, Reuben, is three. The other day, a couple of weeks ago, actually, I found him in bed, sat looking at one of those books, those activity books. Um, And here we go on the screen, one of those um, noodle map type things where they try and find out the right piece of spaghetti that leads to the place. And in the middle, it really is like a bunch of spaghetti. And he was sat there just looking at it intently. And I went up to Reuben and I said to him, do you know which one it is yet? And he looked me back in the eye and he said, I don't know, but I love it. (laughs) You see, there's something about children. There's a greater ability to enjoy their finite wisdom. We can't even begin to trace out God's paths. It's like this coming up on the screen. He's infinitely more wise than we could wrap our brains around. That we couldn't even begin to get our minds around it. We couldn't even begin to trace out God's paths. And you know what? That should cause us to look and say... I don't know, but I love it. Look at verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? I don't know if at any point in the last few weeks you've thought, oh, why couldn't God just do it like this? In fact, I do know because I've heard people say it. Thought it myself. Why couldn't it just be done like this? Why couldn't it just do that differently? Surely that would make more sense. 
Wouldn't that be a more logical approach? And do you see? We're in danger of trying to fill the slot of God's advisor. But really, there's no danger at all. Who has been his counsellor? Who knows his mind? Who could possibly question the ways of the Lord? Do you see, God is so great. His wisdom is beyond question. He is completely perfect. And somehow, he chose me. Look at verse 35. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? God doesn't owe you anything. The moment we think God will be pleased to have us on his team, we're in trouble. When we think we contribute much to our salvation, we're on dangerous ground. Because quickly, our God becomes small and other people aren't worthy of his grace. But who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Do you see, God doesn't need you, and yet he loves you. God doesn't depend on you or rely on you. God doesn't owe you anything, and yet he is overflowing with grace. That he wants to pour it out on you. He doesn't need to. He doesn't have to. He wants to. He wants to. Because he's rich in grace and he wants to extend it to you. Look at verse 36. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. From him are all things. He's the almighty creator. He's the chief designer. He made all things in the universe. He gave life to every one of us. Everything that we have is from him. Through him are all things. He's the powerful sustainer. In him all things in the universe hold together. The very next breath you take. Only available because of God's grace and so for him are all things the purpose of every created thing is for his glory and nothing brings God more glory than his grace overflowing bringing salvation to a people that don't deserve it do you see God's grace is greater than you think Look, in the last few weeks, he's still struggling a bit with the complexities of what's going on here. That's okay in every single way that our mind is stretched. The answer is God's grace is greater than you think, and so he deserves the glory. And as created beings, we receive everything from him. We depend on him for everything, and there is nothing more satisfying. There is nothing more enjoyable in a whole existence than to look at him and say, you are worthy. 
of all blessing and honour and glory. Let me pray. Father, we pray, we ask for your help. Where we struggle in the complexities of what we've talked about the last few weeks, please, would you lift our eyes to recognise your great and awesome grace? Will we lift our eyes to praise you? Because you are God and we are not. We depend on you. And you are overflowing with grace upon us. Please would you help us to praise you. Amen. Well, we're going to um, sing in just a second. I'm going to read, uh, as Joe begins to play, I'm going to read, do stand up, and I'm going to read verse 33 to 36 for us one more time, and then we're going to sing. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen.